Okay, guys, no no music intro. This one's going straight in because we're going we're going ham for episode forty five. I don't know why forty five seems like a big number to me, but it does. So we're gonna tackle some some major <laughs> themes in this one. Um, I think you know, like in the wake of this deluge of sexual abuse, harassment, and rape allegations coming out, like the Me Too movement, it sort of dovetailed with uh, just this, like, terrible shooting in Texas, and so there's, like, two conversations that are a little bit separate, one about, like, gun violence in America, and one about sort of sexual aggression and sexual violence in America, both of which are important, and both of which I I don't want to necessarily detract uh, from the general conversations that are being had. Like, you know, the argument I'm trying to make is not that the current conversations about gun control or about, uh, like, how to sort of um, address what appears to be, like, a pandemic of uh, sexual misconduct by powerful men. Uh, I'm not... I'm not upset with those conversations. They just seem sort of like incomplete to me, and I'm going to go in that direction. But again, it's not to detract from other observations or claims people are making. I will just observe, um, you know, just in my own description of the sexual misconduct, I said powerful men. I think we don't yet know if there is a link between power and sexual misconduct, though that's extremely plausible because there does seem to be like, you know, an element of entitlement or invincibility that the men feel that allows them to act so, uh, so terribly. But there's also an element where it's like, uh, people who are public figures, it's simultaneously easier to make it uh, a newsworthy story if there are allegations of misconduct. And at the same time, victims may feel more compelled to come forward because they know this person is perhaps admired and they wield great power that could allow them to have more and more victims. So it's like, I think you can, it's certainly my instinct that there's like a strong correlation between, you know, the power of a man and like the likelihood of sexual abuse. But I think it could also be the case that this is just very common at every level of society and like power as small as being the night manager at the 7-Eleven could be sufficient uh, for this sort of thing to be ubiquitous. And actually someone observed that there was a woman on television. I think she was, it might've been this former uh, Olympian Uh, Olympic swimmer, I believe, who was talking about this, and she sort of observed, like, if it took this long for sort of, like, affluent women in environments with HR departments and potential allies to, like, come forward and assert their voice, like, imagine what's going on in sort of parts of America where people have less access um, to recourse, and that's something interesting and important to think about. But I think the thing that's sort of I've gotten stuck on and is extremely interesting to me is just sort of like the tradition of 
violence and sexual violence in America and the degree to which those things are universally celebrated. You know, there was this New York Times article about Max Fisher, about Max Fisher, by Max Fisher, that was sort of like, you know, Max Fisher used to be at Vox, and it was very Voxian article in the sense that it said, like, you can sort of plot a chart that says the more guns a country has, the more mass shootings they'll have. And this chart was meant to allow us to be very dismissive of sort of like less evidence-based cultural claims, similar to maybe what Michael Moore said in uh, Bowling for Columbine, that like this is sort of a uniquely violent society. And there's lots of theories on why it might be uniquely violent. You know, some people say, you know, the people who ended up in America, like you're already selecting for like an adventurous type, and then they like fought the elements and Native Americans to survive. So it's like the most brutal... And criminal uh, elements um, like survived and thrived, and then in like Western word expansion, you had a similar dynamic. I don't know if I buy into that. Like, I I think violence can just sort of like have its own momentum, and for whatever reason, I think human beings have a romance with these two things, with violence generally, and especially with like violence against women, or at the very least if not violence against women, like sexual aggression. Um, and like the, the place I think about this most is in the arts. Um, you know, if I think about Western movies, it's like Western movies, and I love Westerns, present these cowboy figures which like, you know, they're not admirable people in any sense. I mean, they're like rugged and strong, but like the average cowboy story is like, this guy who, like, lives in the woods because he's too unreasonable or maybe drunk to, like, actually be a part of society, comes into town, like, gets a prostitute pregnant, and then kills, like, a bandit for money and maybe some innocent bystanders as well. Um, and, like, I challenge people, you know, to look at Westerns, even relatively contemporary westerns and watch like the depictions of sex in these movies because the cowboy is almost always menacing sexually um like you know there will be scenes where like clearly the way the actress has been instructed to react to the cowboy is that like you are both menaced and sort of titillated by this person like you're afraid because they're violent and you think they're just gonna take what they want, no matter what you do. Uh, but you're also sort of aroused by that, like, male strident uh, sexual entitlement. So, like, this is a very, like... And I'm not, I'm not even trying to say that that's, like, a scenario that's impossible in real life, but it's sort of like the sole depiction of sex in Westerns, and it's, like, a very common depiction of sex in action movies and mainstream movies, and, like, even till very recently, like, there was extremely non-consensual sex uh, presented in movies as, like, unproblematic. Like, you know, there's a scene in, I don't remember if it's Rocky or Rocky Two, but where Rocky just essentially rapes Adrian. And, in, like, in movies from the 80s, this is really common, too, where, like, I guess the implication is 
is that like the woman who's like, I guess in this view, like not really capable of understanding her own sexual wants, like resists like violently and physically. But then at some point during the encounter is like, oh, yes, like this is what I wanted too. And it's not even shown. It's not shown as like satire or like to uh, show some complexity or like debauched nature of sex. It's more like that. I mean, this is my reading. I don't know if the directors would argue, but it always, it reads like they're just like, oh, this is what sex is like, especially if you have like alpha males, um, you know, like they take what they want and the women come around and like, you know, so not, not that anyone would deny this strain in the culture, but I think what I'm interested in is the degree to which that's still celebrated and who it's celebrated by and in what context. Because when I look at like modern art forms or things we all like in the culture, there's a variety of tricks we use to allow ourselves to still enjoy depictions of violence and depictions of sexual aggression or violence against women. And I would say the tricks are, you know, there's people who are unsubtle about it. Like Michael Bay will say, like, this movie is going to be about Americans fighting to protect, you know, the ambassador in Libya. It's not going to be a subtle story about the perspective of both sides. The Americans are going to be sympathetic heroes. They're going to gun down dozens of Libyans, and probably at some point during the movie, I'll do a close-up on, like, a woman's ass or something. So it's like, you know what you're getting, right? Like, it's straight to the point, uh, like, violence, and I don't even know if I would call it misogyny, but, like, it's certainly objectification and just sort of, you know, whatever. Um, and I'm, I'm not even saying objectification is necessarily bad, but I'm just saying that's, that's what's on display. And then you have other movies that will claim to be doing something more sophisticated. So, like, here, I'm thinking of someone like Tarantino or Scorsese, right? Like, they will, they will make movies that are also enjoyable because they have very romantic, theatrical, dramatic, indulgent depictions of violence and sex. And those are enjoyable. And then if the director is challenged on... What are the what is the meaning of that content in their art? They will say, "Oh, it's satire, or it's holding up a mirror to America, or it's, um, you know, it's reflective of a reality that needs to be depicted." And I think that sort of like needs to be challenged a little bit. Like, I understand that Scorsese does not believe people should live their lives like goodfellas. That being said, I think he romanticizes the mob. I think he sees these figures as extremely compelling, if not admirable, and that there's something about their lives, the aggression, the pursuit of like wealth and power and ambition, that is beautiful in an artistic sense. And I think... This is an important question because my my deep conviction is that artists do not have social responsibility. Their responsibility is to some notion of truth. And, you know, violence being beautiful 
may be an ugly truth about human beings. And the reason it's compelling in art is not because it's satire that makes us examine our own violence, but because it is, you know, that it uh, speaks to us, to some part of our lizard brain, is sort of like a profound observation. And I think Tarantino, in particular, you know, depicts a lot of, like, violence and sexual aggression that he would explain away as sort of like, oh, this is how women are treated in our society. And it's like, right, but a movie isn't 100% reflective. There's an interplay between society and depictions of society, and these are depictions that I think simultaneously may help, uh, may help perpetuate the way society is and are claiming to do the exact opposite. So, like, I'll give you a couple examples. Like, you know, me and a lot of people I know went to The Wolf of Wall Street and came out of it being like, holy shit, like, I want to do drugs. And Chuck Klosterman even referred to that movie as, like, it's Scorsese's film about how much he misses cocaine. And it's like this love letter to cocaine. Now, you can look at it a totally different way and say, like, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is depicted as a psychopath. Uh, you know, like, the sort of, like, you know, drugs and the way he lives ruin his life. He has no real emotional connection to his to his wife. Like, his life is empty. But it's like, yeah, that's the last five minutes. But the first two hours is a fucking rollicking party that looks like immense fun. And if you don't think Wall Street dudes were in that movie fucking high-fiving each other and feeling thrilled that they had chosen the right life course, like, you're wrong. So, like, if, if Martin Scorsese wants to go around and claim, like, the impact of my film is that I, like, put Wall Street on trial, it's like, no, that's, <laughs> that's not the impact of your film. Like, you tapped into, uh, like, instincts that are very real. And in people who are particularly attuned to the negative impacts of those instincts, maybe they will see this movie as more evidence for, like, the predicament we're in, in terms of these human drives that are so destructive. But to more regular people, to people who are in less control of their own impulses, they're just sitting there going, like, yeah, like, this is fucking cool. Uh, and there's so much shit like this. Like, I used to get so frustrated watching Mad Men, because there was a whole, like, critical, uh, there was a whole critical conversation that was like, oh, what Matt Weiner is doing here is like putting his own audience on trial because like he just makes Don Draper more and more disgusting and the audience still loves him. It's like, well, part of the reason we love him is because the camera loves him because the show insists that despite him being a monster, he is also sexy that there's something linked there and that, like, we can't escape about ourselves. And so it's not like Matthew Weiner holds the rest of us in contempt. I mean, he may think he does, but, like, the way Don Draper is depicted, I think, shows us that Matthew Weiner feels the exact same way about Don Draper the rest of us do, which is, like, I'm horrified at the admiration I sometimes feel for this character. But, like, you know, he puts on the right suit and winks at his secretary and, like, my heart starts beating a little bit faster. 
And, and I'm hoping people listening are relating to these reactions and not just concluding that, like, I'm the biggest uh, scumbag in the world. But whatever. Either way, it's fine. Um, and so, you know, I think, like, we let film directors... And again, I am not interested in censoring anyone's art. What I'm interested in is not allowing people who what I think they're doing is saying there is like an inescapable compelling truth about violence or sexual aggression and I want to explore that in my art because it fascinates me I don't think those people should be able to get like a socially responsible artist sticker and sometimes they don't you know it's it's not universally critics do not universally accept that Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino don't like violence. But I do think it is the case that people think Martin Scorsese is a serious artist with more important things to say than Michael Bay. And I'm wondering if part of what both Michael Bay and Scorsese say is, if I put some based debauched things on TV, you will be compelled by them. And... Scorsese is able to do that in a sophisticated way while Michael Bay is only able to do it by hitting, you know, the most obvious notes um, available. And another area where I think the conversation about both violence and sexual violence is incredibly dishonest is in the consumption of rap and hip-hop. You know, there's this sort of debate amongst rap and hip-hop fans, which, you know, I call myself one, uh, you know, there's people who like conscious rap, there's people who like ignorant rap, and there's people who like both. And there are certainly artists in between. You know, you would say, like, KRS-One, De La Soul, that's conscious rap. It has political themes. It's, like, socially responsible. It's not particularly violent or depicting of sexual violence against women. You have more ignorant rap, which might be like M.O.P., Clips, you know, Pusha T, um, folks like that. And then there's folks in the middle who will, and who are often the most respected, who discuss sort of like their own moral conflicts with uh, behaviors that, you know, at least the lyrics would suggest they uh, engage in. You know, you can think of people like Tupac, Jay-Z, um there will sort of be like, you know, two tracks on an album that just sort of like celebrate uh, violence and drug dealing and all that stuff. And then there might be one reflective track that's like, even though I'm in this difficult economic position, you know, like my mother or grandmother, you know, I know this is wrong or I believe in God and like the Bible tells me it's wrong. Whatever the examination is. I mean, that's not, you know, Tupac (laughs) talked about his mom a lot. Other rappers talk about God and stuff. It's not exactly... And that theme, I think that rappers sometimes invoke themselves that sort of like, oh, all rap, even quote unquote ignorant rap, is actually this very informed social commentary because like to the extent a rapper is brazen about his involvement in the drug trade or his own violent exploits or his uh, like sexual domination of women, that's just a reflection of the depravity of... uh, that's just a reflection of the depravity of the environment. And so inevitably what the rapper is saying is, this is what will happen, uh, you know, if you leave human beings in these conditions, these social and economic conditions. And I think that conclusion, uh, 
serves the purpose of allowing the critic or the listener, probably white, to enjoy music that really leans into its own id, that, you know, glorifies sort of like total sexual selfishness, total economic ambition and greed, and total willingness to engage in violence, and says, oh, I like this because it's social commentary, not because there's a big part of my brain that delights in the idea that I would just walk into a party and say, like, you, bitch, you're coming home with me, which, of course, is a part of everyone's brain and an active part of everyone's brain. And you can like that song without endorsing that attitude because it's sort of like an experiment, right? Like, it's the song is taking you to a place that lives inside you, and it's a place that you suppress because you should and you have to, but maybe, like, bumping the song in your car and for a moment... Uh, like facing the part of yourself that feels that way is like extremely gratifying and enjoyable. And I think that's what's really going on. And it's just annoying. Uh, you know, it's annoying to have these people. Uh, and like some of the artists are so brazen. Like, you know, I love The Weeknd. Um, and he's one of like the most sexually depraved artists I've ever consumed like it's such there's such like um weird <laughs> debauched sexual content especially in his early work and like it's just creepy but it's almost like watching the movie zodiac or something you know like fucking serial killers are fascinating like we don't all want to kill people but we might really like uh law and order svu like why is that like why does law and order even have to have a special victims unit show like there wasn't enough sexual or serial violence on regular law and order they needed <laughs> a special more fucked up show to like satisfy the public interest like obviously this is in us um and so like i was just thinking about like some lines that just like you know and i'm, I'm not saying people say like the weekend's particularly deep but it's like some of these things i think there's only one way to interpret it like this is my favorite line from Starboy. It says, House so empty, need a centerpiece. 20 racks, a table cut from ebony. Cut that ivory into skinny pieces. Then she clean it with her face. Man, I love my baby. Like, it's just a little line about how he likes that this girl does a lot of cocaine. And, like, there's just something, uh, you know, I would use the word, like, cool or artful. Like, it's fun to listen to. Now, like, I don't want to be in that situation necessarily, but I certainly have like a romantic feeling about drugs that is not in fact reflective of their reality when I hear that line, similar to when I'm sitting in Wolf of Wall Street or whatever. So like, again, I don't think these guys are responsible to, um, to say anything that's true. And I think sometimes the whole exercise becomes, like, silly. Like, I know, um, you know, people think Kendrick Lamar is very deep and he has this album that, like, sort of invokes the thing I'm annoyed by and talking about. It's called, you know, Good Kid, Mad City, which is sort of just, like, a shorthand paraphrase of, like, the whole thing I'm talking about, which is, like, you gotta let these guys off the hook for everything described in the music because, uh... You know, like, the inner city's tough. And it's like, Kendrick Lamar 
is much smarter than that. And also, like, here's the line that was, like, from the most popular Kendrick Lamar song on that album. All my life I want money and power. Respect my mind or die from lead shower. I pray my dick gets big as the Eiffel Tower so I can fuck the world for 72 hours. Like, I don't... I think he's tapping into something there that is not about economic or social deprivation. It's about, like, the scale of an ego's ambition. And it's universal. And that's why... Like, if rap were about specific social problems, it would not be universally adored by every class of American people, which it is because it's a great art form. Uh, You know, and it's... You know, I would not... I think there's an effort to place it in, like, a civil rights tradition of art, where, again, like, I see it in a tradition of, like, you know, Westerns were about male ego and violence and violence against women and the pursuit of totally individual aims at the to the detriment of a broader society or social group. Rock and roll, to some extent, was about those themes, if not always lyrically, certainly in the behavior of the rock and roll stars. I think hip-hop took up that mantle, um, and I think hip-hop is every bit as influenced by the, you know, violence and sexual violence that runs through American culture for hundreds of years as it is by, uh, you know, the specific history of African-American music. Like, I think both those influences are uh, incredibly important and ever-present. So, you know... Um, and I just will note here, this is sort of like off topic, but like, I think part of what I'm saying is that like violence and sexual violence are like these artistic cheat codes that just like they will want, people's eyes will want to be on products that contain those things, which like reveals something very base about us, but not something very base about specific people, about all of us. And, um... One conclusion I draw from this is how fucking impressive Chance the Rapper is. Because if somebody told me, oh, there's like a very Christian rapper who like is socially responsible and like sort of positive and like he swears and talks about sex, but like there's no real violence and there's not that much aggression, I'd be like, this guy must suck. Like that sounds lame. And he's great. He's one of the best rappers. But I just, I think like, like, he's, he's one of my favorite rappers, but I just think it's... He set the degree of difficulty for himself so much higher than other artists do by sort of, like, curtailing some of the most uh, compelling type of content. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, and again, I think sometimes I want to make clear that, like, I'm not making the argument, like oh, like, hip-hop, like, drives violence and sexual violence in society. I think sometimes people say that, and it's, like, so myopic because it's, like, well, the whole culture is uh, built around violence and sexual violence. Like, it's in every movie, it's in every book, it's in a lot of songs. So, like, you cannot single out hip-hop because it's contemporarily popular. Like, there's nothing... I mean, there are many things that are unique about hip-hop artistically, but the adoption of these themes uh, and the embracing of these themes as legitimate topics for art, despite them being uh, 
antisocial behaviorally, you know, if one were to actually live them out, that's like, you know, as American as apple pie or whatever. So like you can't, I'm not, I'm not mad at uh, rappers at all. I think it's like, it is in fact great to have like a new community of artists take up themes that, you know, artists in the society have been sort of like wrestling with uh, forever. So it's like good in the lexicon in that sense. Um, But I, I don't, pick up the, like, uh, you know, like, the Ta-Nehisi Coates argument or arguments others would make that it's, like, hip-hop is a part of, like, a socially conscious revolution. Like, I don't really think that. Like, I think it's deeply American, and I think it is, it is afflicted by violence and sexual violence in the exact same way that American society is and American art is. Um, and so, you know, just talking about, like, Scorsese and Tarantino and like rap. I'm I'm trying to say that you know violence and sexual violence are no less present in the artistic products that are consumed by the sort of like bourgeois urban elites than those consumed by you know Trump voting regular rural America or whatever. It is different in form. It will often be more sophisticated and will claim to come with a hint of irony or satire, but I'm not sure what the social value of that is. Oh, and I would say this is really similar to, I think, what you might call, like, bourgeois consumption of racism, which is, like, you know, Colbert or South Park will tell you that, like, when they do an Asian voice, it's because they're making fun of racism or something, and so it's, like, the types of people who watch those shows who take themselves seriously intellectually can say... I'm laughing at something other than an Asian accent. When I think, of course, that's what we're laughing at. And it is an important conclusion to draw that you can make a group of college-educated urban professionals laugh with an Asian accent almost as easily as you could make anyone else laugh. I mean, I think that's a meaningful observation. And I think it is also true about the universal consumption of violence and sexual violence within the culture. So I don't have, um, you know, prescriptions and I don't want to, I don't want to even encourage artists to pick more responsible topics. I mean, I, I do think that even though I already said there's an interplay between you know, culture and depictions of culture or society and renderings of society. I do think society is much more responsible than the artist. So you don't say to the artist, depict less violence so you can help us be less violent. Like if, if we are all less compelled by violence, violence will make its way into the uh, cultural lexicon less. But how we achieve that uh, is certainly mysterious to me. Um... But again, the only observation I'm trying to make is, like, that seems ever-present in American history, maybe more than other places, and also just as present in the cultural consumption of the wealthy and educated uh, as then the, you know, poor and uneducated. And I think also, like, it's important... I mean, I'm not trying to cast in my lot with those that would say, like, this is all the patriarchy 
and toxic masculinity. So don't focus on these individual men because, like, it's a universal problem. Like, I don't think I agree with all of that, but I do think there is a problem with uh, adjudicating a universal problem as if it's a list of offenders, which is not to say I don't want men for whom indiscretions or misconduct or abuse can be proved to not be punished in this way. It ju- I just mean as like a broader societal process, sort of saying like, who's, who's crossed from the pool of unthreatening, uh, who's crossed from the pool of like unthreatening, well-behaved men onto the list of offenders. Um, that is an understanding that does not account for the ubiquity of these themes and the fact that they're lurking in everyone. And, you know, like I would, you know, you, you hear in some of these things, and I'm not trying to laugh it off or say that women shouldn't feel this way, but I do read people saying, oh, you know, I felt safe with this person and now I'm not safe. And, or like I realized how profoundly unsafe I was and that was a big violation. And like, I think that's, um, that is a trauma. I'm, I'm not mocking that loss, but I would also just say like, you're never safe. You're never safe with any man. You know, how many millions of women in human history have had the abuser be their father or uncle? And also you aren't safe with yourself because like you, man or woman, you have this lizard brain that like, you know, if you're starving or confronted with some sort of deprivation may turn you into a psychopath because your biological imperatives are survival, not corresponding behavior with your own conception of ethics. So like, you're never like, I don't know. I just feel like you read history and you're like, within two generations, like the Holocaust happened, like hundred million people were killed by communism. Like these were all normal people. A lot of them were educated. Like that's us. Uh, it could not only be the men or women you trust, it could be you. Um, you know, you can, you could be your own abuser. Not that that's the same exact problem, but in other words, like violence and sexual violence, I think need to be understood as so universally present uh, that the thing to do is not to separate the world into camps, um, but perhaps to become more aware of the factors that bring it out and what uh, parameters or things can inhibit it. Um, and I think that is part of what's going on, because I think one thing we are discovering, though I brought up at the beginning, I don't know exactly what we should conclude, but I think one thing you might conclude is okay, power brings this out, particularly from men. So, you know, as a society, we may have thought, like, to protect, you know, women against a middle manager patting them on the ass, maybe an HR department works. But maybe if that guy's the president of the company, uh, the HR department is not sufficient because, you know, an HR department can't tell Mark Zuckerberg to change his behavior. Uh, not that I am accusing, uh, our great Lord and master Mark Zuckerberg of anything is a theoretical example. Um, so yeah, that, I don't know exactly what the response is, but that might be like the locus, uh, 
of intervention. Like when people's power is sufficiently great that it overwhelms the institutions we've created to constrain um, behavior like sexual aggression, then those may be situations you can identify as dangerous in advance. And I think people have, but it's, it's still what do you do because women need to pursue careers. Women need to be able to uh, dialogue and interact with powerful people in pursuit of their career aims without feeling you know, threatened or compromised or whatever. So, like, knowing that a person has power over you does not necessarily help you to avoid them wielding that power. So, yeah, there's some other intervention. But the last thing I just wanted to mention, since we're, um, since I talked about music a bit, um, is I just, I was very struck by this Kesha song, Praying. There's a couple songs I like, on her new album. Uh, I have some friends that really liked it and sort of like turned me on to it, but I think um, Praying is a great song and it's a really compelling song. I'm, I don't claim that I know exactly what went on between her and that producer, Dr. Luke, but I know sort of what happened is they had a conflict where she was saying like, you know, I have my own artistic vision, um your writing songs for me are not allowing me to write the songs I want to write. I want out of my contract. And he said no. And then at some point it also came out that she accused him of sexual abuse and of calling her fat and driving her to bulimia. And, you know, there's like a very ugly lawsuit or whatever. And like, I can't, you know, I don't know the particulars. What I do know is that this song praying uh, though she has said in the media that it addresses like a lot of situations in her life, it appears to be in some ways directed to Dr. Luke because it is sort of a narrative of a a victim who has come out of the storm uh, addressing her abuser. And I think what's so powerful about the song is that it inverts the power dynamics of all the situations. So like, for example... One thing Dr. Luke is alleged to have done is, you know, threatened Kesha's career if she came forward with, you know, claims about the sexual abuse or emotional abuse or whatever. Um, and so there's a lyric in this song that's like, there's one line that says, we both know all the truth I could tell. I'll just say this, I wish you farewell. And then there's another part that says... And you said that I was done. Um, you're wrong. The best is yet to come. And then a few lines later, when I'm finished, they won't even know your name. So, like, this is a powerful inversion, right? Because the threat of the theoretical Dr. Luke in the song is like, you tried to compel my behavior by threatening my career. But I am the talented artist. Uh, I mean, this is how I interpret it. So, like, I have the power to erase you. But I'm not going to. I'm just going to say goodbye. But, like, the gun is not pointed at me. The gun's pointed at you. So don't forget that. So that's like a, you know, Kesha is no longer the victim in that scenario. She is now the person capable of abuse of the other. And she is saying she's not going to use that power, but reminding her former abuser of that dynamic. And then the big theme in the song 
is sort of that, like, you know, I, as, like, a somewhat uh, believing in God person, interpret this in, like, a religious way, but you can interpret it however you want, is that, you know, like, the chorus and elements that come back in the song is, I hope you're somewhere praying, I hope your soul is changing, I hope you find your peace falling on your knees. Which, to me, is sort of this thing of, like, we don't have a dispute anymore. Like, I was the victim, but I prevailed. So I'm fine. You have a problem because you have disgraced yourself in the eyes of, like, the universe or whatever. Or God, if you believe in God. So, like, for right now, again, like a powerful inversion. Like, the existential threat is upon you. Because you tried to ruin me but failed. I will be fine. You are, um, you are indicted by your behavior. And so what I wish for you is not punishment uh, or, you know, failure. What I wish for you is to be one of those people who is capable of coming to understand your crimes and repenting. But I'm also not involved in that process. I hope you are capable of that. I'm not here to carry you there. So hopefully wherever you are, you're, like, taking a hard look in the mirror. But I don't care, because I'm out here succeeding. So, like, in both senses of, like, who has the power to abuse the other person, that's inverted by the song. In the sense of who's going to be okay, that's inverted. And in the sense of, like, in which direction should concern even go, that's inverted. So, like, I think this is a extremely powerful construction and empowering construction. And I was thinking, like, one thing you do need in the arts, you know, rather than suppressing uh, suppressing any particular depiction of, you know, violence or sexual violence, which I don't think you should do, you need, like, counter strains. And, you know, in hip-hop, like in all things, like rock and roll, whatever, you have, like, these female figures who have very interesting approaches. Like, I think of um, Nicki Minaj oftentimes as, like, Hillary Clinton. Like, she... She's better than the men at this male thing. Like, she writes lyrics about sexual aggression and debauchery and making men do what she wants with her, and they're, like, funnier and better delivered and more delightfully debauched than most of the male rappers. So, like, she's not necessarily bringing, like, a feminine insight to the depiction of sex so much as she's co-opting like, traditionally male perspectives on sex and putting herself in the position of the aggressor, which is, like, very powerful in and of itself. Um, and I think, like, has a lot of meaning for the art form. And I think, you know, I was thinking about this, like, you know, what would this be in, like, a Western? Like, you know, listening to this Kesha song, like, what would that artistic rendering be. And, you know, I was just imagining, like, I feel like maybe I even saw this in a Western, but the scene in my mind is, like, you know, the prostitute that the cowboy, like, fucked and forgot earlier is now, like, while he was asleep, she put on his serape and his hat, and she has his gun, and now it's trained on him, and she's got, like, a cigarette hang off her lower lip, and she's like, now I'm gonna ride off into the sunset, and, like, I won't kill you, because who cares but I could, because, like, I got the drop on you now. Like, you know, I think those sorts of inversions have power. So maybe that's part of, like, the 
you know, the cultural rendering too. And people make this argument, you know, have more voices so that there are more and different people placed in the position um, of agency or whatever. Um, so yeah, those are my, my long-winded uh, thoughts. And if I was less scared about copyright stuff, I'd, I'd put the Kesha song here. But uh, I can't do that, so I'll, I'll just give you a little... A little bit of myself. I hope you somewhere pray. I hope you somewhere.